This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Good afternoon and welcome. It's uh, delightful to see such a gigantic crowd. We are pleased, uh, along with the Graduate Council, to present Svante Pebo, this year's speaker, in the first lecture series, which I should tell you, according to the terms of the agreement, is dedicated to an exploration of the immortality of the soul or other kindred subjects. <laughs> I'll get back to the kindred subject part at the end of my introduction. Now, I know there are a lot of scientists in here, so you'll forgive me because I'm not one. Um, I have never forgotten uh, the excitement that I experienced when I read the opening pages of Donald Johansson's Lucy about 30-odd years ago. In fact, when I left Australia, I took a handful of books with me, and one of them was, was Lucy. On the morning of November 30th, he writes, 1974, I woke, as I usually do on a field expedition, at daybreak. Johansson and his team, as we all know, were in Ethiopia in a place called Hadar, an ancient lake bed in the Afar Desert. They were looking for fossils at a place called Location 162. Having found nothing that day, they headed back to camp, but stopped on the way to survey a little gully. There was nothing to be found until Johansson called out, that's a bit of hominid arm. Jesus Christ, exclaimed Tom Gray, the graduate student with Johansson at the time. One piece led to another and another until a pretty intact skeleton of a young female was found who became known to the world as Lucy. Reading Svante Pebo's recently published Neanderthal Man in Search of Lost Genomes, I experienced that same sense of exhilaration again. He begins, Late one night in 1996, I had just dozed off in bed when my phone rang. The caller was Matthias Krings, a graduate student in my laboratory at the Zoological Institute at the University of Munich. All he said was, It's not human. I'm coming, I mumbled, threw on some clothes and drove across town to the lab. That afternoon, Matthias had started our DNA sequencing machines, feeding them fragments of DNA he had extracted and amplified from a small piece of a Neanderthal arm bone held at the Rheinisches Landesmuseum in Bonn. It had been discovered about 140 years ago. Here it was. Another hominid arm was about to reveal another piece of the grand story of human evolution. Just as the dry earth at Hadar disgorged one bone after another belonging to Lucy, Professor Pebo writes that when he got to the lab, Matthias and a young archaeologist, Ralph Schmitz, quote, could hardly control their delight as they showed me the string of A's, C's, G's and T's coming out of the sequences. And just as had been true for Johansson and Gray, Pebo writes of his co-workers, neither they nor I had ever seen anything like it before. Aside from the fact that paleoanthropologists and, and paleogeneticists uh, seem to have some of their best moments when either just getting out of bed or slipping into it, <laughs> what the best of them are able to do is convey to those of us not in those fields but deeply interested in them is their giddy excitement at discovery and the high-minded purpose of their research, the quest for human origins. And it is indeed as important as it sounds. Svante Pebo is a Swedish, as you know, biologist and evolutionary anthropologist, best known as one of the founders of paleogenetics. 
Since developing a method of isolating and sequencing the DNA of long-extinct species, Professor Pebo and his lab have worked extensively on Neanderthal DNA. In 2010, they succeeded in mapping the Neanderthal genome. Professor Pebo's work has demonstrated that Neanderthals interbred with Eurasian humans, resulting in traces of Neanderthal DNA that remain in the genomes of many humans alive today. He was born in Stockholm, earned his PhD in 1986 from the Department of Cell Biology at the University of Uppsala, and from 1987 to 1990, he was a postdoctoral fellow in UC Berkeley's Department of Biochemistry, and I'm sure there may be still some people here from that time. He became a full professor of general biology at the University of Munich in 1990 and remained there until 1998, but since 1997 he has actually served as director of the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig. He's received many honours and awards for his work, including the Gruber Genetics Prize in 2013, the Theodor Bucher Medal from the Federation of European Biomedical Societies in 2010, and the Kistler Prize in 2009. And in 2007, Time magazine named Professor Pebo one of the 100 most influential people in the world. Since their founding in 1928, the first lectures have been delivered by such distinguished individuals as Oliver Sacks, Thomas Kuhn, and Aldous Huxley. This evening, Svante Pebo will join that list with a lecture that is certainly a kindred subject to the immortality of the soul, in that it might be said to be on the immortality of Neanderthal DNA. It is entitled A Neanderthal Perspective on Human Origins. Please join me in welcoming Svante Pebo to Berkeley. Well, thank you very, very much for that very kind introduction. And it's really a wonderful pressure to be back in Berkeley that still feels a little bit like home to me. And it's, of course, also a great honor to, to be allowed to deliver the first lecture here. But I must say also that I'm a little bit intimidated by the subject matter when I got this letter about the immortality of the soul. And I think I sort of have to announce right at the start that I will not talk about the soul at all, really. So what I will then discuss is our attempts to study the genome, the DNA of Neanderthals. And as you will know, these are the closest extinct relatives of present-day humans. They are the closest relatives that are extinct to all humans that are around on the planet today. This is a Neanderthal skeleton on the left compared to a modern human skeleton. There are these sort of robust forms of humans that appear in the fossil record around three or 400,000 years ago in Europe and Western Asia, where they then live till they disappear around 40,000 years ago or so. And what I will focus on are then comparisons between the genomes of Neanderthals and present-day humans particularly with a view to then seeing what is unique to fully modern humans compared to our closest relatives, but also then on what DNA Neanderthals have contributed to present-day humans. So as was said in the introduction, I will then perhaps, if you like, not talk about the immortality of the soul, but a little bit about the immortality of Neanderthals, if you like, in the sense of how they live on a little bit in some people today. But before I then start, I thought I should just remind you about what you all know, 
that our genome, the DNA, is stored in almost all cells in our body in the form of DNA, which is replicated every time new germ cells are formed and a new individual is formed. And this DNA is made out of about three billion letters in the genetic code that are then replicated very faithfully. But sometimes errors are made. So when a new germ cell is formed, sometimes the wrong base is built in, in the daughter molecule. So every baby that's for, born carries something like 50 or 100 new mutations that's neither there in the mother nor the father. So when we, and these mutations then we can observe as sequence differences between individuals in the population. So if you compare two genomes between two people in this room, we will have something like three million differences between two random genomes we choose. And if you then want to reconstruct the history of a piece of DNA or the genome, you can use these differences that you will see between two humans. You can add in a chimpanzee. You will find more differences, about 10 times more differences to a chimpanzee. And you can reconstruct the history of that piece of DNA with the help of these differences you observe. And you generally depict this in the forms of these trees. Very simply here, the two human sequences go back to common ancestor quite recently. Quite much further back is a common ancestor shared with the chimp too. And if you now go and study on a worldwide scale human genetic variation. The surprising finding that actually much came out of Berkeley and Alan Wilson's lab here is that most of the genetic variation you find in the world is found in Africa, although there are, of course, a lot less people living in Africa today than living outside Africa. Those people outside Africa have less genetic variation, and for most of the genome, it is true that the variants you find outside Africa have close relatives inside Africa. But there is then a component of the genetic variation in Africa that's found only there. And the interpretation of that is that modern humans evolved in Africa, accumulated genetic variation there, and a part of that variation, so to say, went out and colonized the rest of the world. And with some genetic tricks, you can also estimate approximately when this exodus happened. And it's less than 100,000 years ago, probably more 50,000, 60,000 years ago. So this is the recent African origin model of modern humans, much designed, as I said, sort of um, uh, here by Alan Wilson and people in his lab. But there is, if you like, then a problem with this model. And that is that when modern humans then come out of Africa, they were not at all alone on the planet. There were other forms of humans also living outside Africa since almost two million years. Most famously then Neanderthals in Europe and other forms that are less well described in Asia. So a big debate in paleontology since many, many years was then what happened when modern humans met Neanderthals. Did one mix with each other or not? And many years ago, there were people that even believed in total continuity, that Neanderthals would be the direct ancestors of Europeans today. I think no one believed that for a long time. There were many people, particularly based on genetic data, that thought there was a total replacement, zero percent 
contribution from Neanderthals, and you can imagine anything in between here, of course. So our first chance then to test this came in 97, as you heard in the introduction, when we were able to determine the first DNA sequences from a Neanderthal specimen. And not just any Neanderthal, actually the Neanderthal from Neanderthal, so to say, that was found in 1856 and gave its name to this group of hominins. And I can also perhaps say that we're very lucky, I think, that our first Neanderthal we studied was the type specimen that gave its name to this group of hominins. Because almost invariably, what other Neanderthals we ever have studied since then, there's always some paleontologists that come to us and say, oh, it's a bit too robust, it's a little too gracile, there's something wrong with it, it's not quite a typical Neanderthal. But if this is not a Neanderthal, then they don't exist, so to say. So at the time, we took a sample from the humerus up here. At the time, quite a big sample, not this big. This was both for carbon dating and for the DNA. Nowadays, we take much smaller samples than this. You work under clean room conditions to avoid contaminating your samples that contain then only traces of degraded and chemically modified DNA. Much less DNA often in your sample than in, say, a skin fragment that may be like a dust particle in the air in a normal room. And we focused on a tiny part of the genome, the mitochondrial genome that's inherited only from mothers to offspring, a particularly variable part of that, reconstructed it cumbersomely at that time with the technique of the time, amplifying short pieces, seeing those differences that are consistently there, and then estimating such a tree of relationships for this part of the genome, for the mitochondrial genome then. And what we found was then that the mitochondrial genomes of all present-day humans go back to a common ancestor between 100 and 200,000 years ago, as had been found by Alan Wilson here at Berkeley. But the mitochondrial genome of this Neanderthal went much, much further back to a common ancestor shared with present-day humans about half a million years ago or so. And since then, others, and as well as we, have looked at many more mitochondrial genomes from Neanderthals. They all fall together outside the variation of present-day humans. So it's quite clear there is no people today that walk around with Neanderthal mitochondria in their bodies. So in this sense, it is total replacement here, 0% contribution. But of course, this is this tiny part of the genome. The vast majority of our DNA is in the nucleus, and it's inherited from the mothers as well as from fathers to the offspring. And the chance to begin to look at that came in the mid, around 2005 or so, with new technology high-throughput DNA sequencing technology that allows you to sequence millions and even billions of DNA molecules rapidly and inexpensively. So you can then just extract all the DNA from such a fossil, sequence randomly all the DNA molecules in it, make yourself a little DNA database, and compare it to, say, the human genome, to bacterial genomes, chimpanzee genome, and so on. The first place where this worked was in southern Europe, in Croatia, Vindia Cave here, from this bone here. It's a very late Neanderthal, around 40,000 years old. And the first thing that you will notice then in this 
DNA fragments is that they are very, very short, 50, 60 bases long, whereas from a blood sample from me, you could easily get 10,000 base pair long fragments. You will also notice that only a tiny proportion of all the DNA in the bone comes from the Neanderthal. Our very best bones, something like 3 or 4%, all the rest are from bacteria and fungi that colonized the bone after the death of this individual 40,000 years ago. So we were very lucky then to get funding for a five-year project to try to reconstruct a complete genome of a Neanderthal. So we worked very hard on methods to improve how we extract DNA from the bone and make it into a form that we can feed into these sequencing machines. And they also got more efficient in how many molecules they could sequence over this time. We looked through many archaeological sites and many bones and focused on three bones from that cave in Croatia from three different Neanderthal individuals. We sequenced a bit over a billion DNA fragments from those bones, most of them then from microorganisms, and then matched these fragments to the human genome taking into account that some of these have chemical modifications that may give errors in the sequences. And at the time, we then had about 3 billion base pairs sequenced. So we had random fragments from all over the genome. Sometimes we have one fragment covering a piece in the human genome for comparison, sometimes two, sometimes even three, but we also miss big parts. So at that time, we then had a little over half the genome. But it allowed us to get an overview and begin to ask these questions one was interested in. So the first question was this thing, what happened when modern humans came out of Africa and met Neanderthals? Did one mix or not? And we put together a big consortium of of different groups, uh, sort of theoretical groups, that helped us study this particularly Montes Slatkin and his group here at Berkeley, Rasmus Nielsen here at Berkeley, David Reich and his group at Harvard, and addressed this question in actually three different independent ways because we knew this was a very controversial question, so we wanted to get it right. I will just present one of them, the most direct one here, saying that an expectation, if Neanderthals mixed with ancestors of Europeans, would be that Europeans should share more genetic variants today with Neanderthals than Africans today would share with Neanderthals, because Neanderthals have never been in Africa, so there's no reason to assume they would have contributed anything to Africans. So it's this idea here. If there was a contribution from Neanderthals to Europeans, Europeans would on average be closer to Neanderthals than Africans here. That would go back here. If there's no contribution, the Neanderthal is equally far from people in Africa as people in Europe. So we then sequenced not only the Neanderthal genome, but five people from different parts of the world to be sure we had exactly the same types and frequencies of errors in the sequences. A European, two Africans, a Chinese person, and one from Papua New Guinea, and did a very simple analysis. So just to test this first, if you take two Africans, we just compare those two African genomes and find all places where they have differences. Then we take the Neanderthal and see how often does the Neanderthal match one African or the other African. 
since Neanderthals have never been here, there's no reason to assume that Neanderthal would have contributed more to one African than the other. So this should be 50-50 matching. And indeed, statistically speaking, that's 50-50. It's no difference between these two. But it was then different when we looked at a European and an African. Now we found statistically significantly more matching to the European individual than the African individual, which surprised me at the time. I was really biased towards thinking there had been no contribution. But I was even more surprised then when we compared a Chinese individual to an African individual. We again found more matching to the Chinese person, although most people would say there had never been Neanderthals in China. And even more surprising than Papua New Guinea, where for sure there have never been Neanderthals, we again see more matching to uh, Papuans than to Africans. So the hypothesis that came out of this was to say that if modern humans come out of Africa, they presumably pass by the Middle East. And we know there has been... So this was the question, how could this be? And the model was we knew there had been Neanderthals, in the Middle East. So if these early modern humans that came out mixed with Neanderthals and then became the ancestors of everybody outside Africa, these modern humans could have carried with them this Neanderthal contribution, so to say, out to the rest of the world, even to areas where there hadn't been Neanderthals, to the extent that somewhere between 1% and 2% of the genomes of everyone outside Africa today come from Neanderthals. So what you, you can then see that there is this sort of part of the variation in Europe, for example, that match Neanderthals. This isn't so easy to see. This is a schematic picture of variation among a couple of hundred Europeans. Any sequence difference is indicated in the genome by yellow here. On the bottom is the Neanderthal genome. And you will see that there are a few European here for this region that's almost identical to Neanderthal and quite different from everyone else. There are sort of these types of fragments that sort of make up the evidence for this. But this was not the only possible model to explain this. There was also the possibility that that could go back much further to substructural populations in Africa. If we imagine that Neanderthals, maybe half a million years ago or so, have an origin in Africa and leave Africa and become Neanderthals in Europe here, and that this substructure survives in Africa, and that then modern humans evolve in the same corner of Africa where Neanderthals did, leave Africa and meet the Neanderthals, and these modern humans also spread around the rest of Africa and absorb this variation, we could arrive at a situation where Neanderthals are closer to Europeans today than Africans are. This is a more complicated explanation, but it's a possible explanation. But the difference here is then the similarities between Neanderthals and non-Africans would be quite old, several hundred thousand years old. Here it would be quite recent, less than a hundred thousand. So a very big question early on became, when did this admixture happen? And David Reich and Nick Patterson and their postroms, Sri Ram Sankararaman, came up with a way to address this. And that is to say that if Neanderthals and modern humans mixed, 
the first generation, the hybrid, so to say, will of course have one chromosome that comes from Neanderthals and one from modern humans. If these individuals then continue to have babies with the modern humans, there will be recombination in each generation, so that information is crossed over between these two chromosomes. So there will then be mosaic chromosomes with part Neanderthal, part modern human parts here. And as the generations go on, there's more and more crossing over happen. So these pieces get smaller and smaller with time. So you can actually look at the size distribution of Neanderthal fragments and estimate how many generations back did, were they introduced into the modern human gene pool. So look at the sizes of these things. So you have to make a number of assumptions here about generation time, recombination landscapes, and so on. And making those assumptions, they came up with a date somewhere between 40 and 90,000 years ago. So quite recently. Only compatible really with this recent admixture to modern humans when they come out of Africa. But I'm a sort of really practical person. These are, of course, theoretical considerations that rely on a number of assumptions. And maybe some of those assumptions are wrong. So I really like to go back in time and try to find actual evidence for when this happened. And that is beginning to be possible now. Because there was a bone found now just two years ago in a river in western Siberia here at a place called Ust-Ishim at this Irtish River. And there was a bone washed up on the shore there, a femur like this, that looks very much like a modern human femur. And we were very lucky to get this femur to our lab in Leipzig. And we were shocked when we radiocarbon dated it because it turned out to be 45,000 years old. So it's actually older than any other directly dated modern humans outside the Middle East and Africa. So this is a very early modern human, 45,000 years old. So falls actually in this range, 40 to 90,000 years ago, when this mixture with Neanderthals could have happened. And certainly this individual lived at a time when there was also Neanderthals around. So now we can, and this is a sort of unpublished part of what I'm telling you, look for the first time in an early modern human that lived at this time and say, have this individual met and bred with Neanderthals or not? So if you first look here on just one chromosome, a number of European and Asian people today, Neanderthal fragments are indicated by red. When they are homozygous, they are green here. You can actually see a difference here between Europeans and Asians. If you squint a bit, you can almost see that the Asians have slightly more Neanderthal fragments. And that's actually true. There's sort of evidence from Montes-Latkin's lab here, that Asians and others also have shown that Asians seem to have an additional Neanderthal component that you don't see in Europe. But the big question for us now is this Ustishim individual here, 45,000 years, does that have any Neanderthal contribution or not? And the answer to that is yes, it does. And actually a lot, if you like. Overall, not more than this individual, but it's distributed in much bigger chunks, as you would expect, right? When you go back in time, there should not have been so much recombination having happened. It's this thing again. So we can go back to this scheme and look at the length, if you like, here, 
in genetic length on the chromosomes of Neanderthal fragments and how well the Neanderthal variants correlate over lengths on the chromosomes. If you look at these, these are present-day humans here that arrived at this 40 to 90,000. This is this 45,000-year-old human now that allows us to estimate that somewhere in the order of three or 400 generations before this individual lived, Neanderthals contributed here. So that would then allow us to estimate this to somewhere 50 to 60,000 years ago. So we're sort of narrowing in on when this happened. But very clearly it's this model that is right then. There's gene flow from Neanderthals to modern humans after one comes out of Africa. So there are a number of questions we all often get about this. Some people sort of ask, is this a lot of Neanderthal ancestry I have or a little, when we say 1 or 2 percent of our genome? And one way to think about that in very simple terms is perhaps to think about your own family tree. If this is you, you of course share 50 percent of your DNA with your mom and your dad, 25 with your great-grandparents, great, great 12% approximately with your great-grandparents, with your great-great-grandparents, 6%, 3%. And if we now go back six generations, you then share on average 1.5% or so. So in some sense, in the quantitative sense, it is as if one of your ancestors back here was a Neanderthal. It's, of course, much further back, and it's distributed differently in the genome, but it might give you a feeling for sort of how big a contribution is this. So something else that people often ask us is, well, were the Neanderthals the same species as us or not? Sort of, should we call them a separate species name, Homo neanderthalensis, or a subspecies? And I always sort of dodge that question and say, you can even cite Darwin about this, and saying to discuss if two things are rightly called species or varieties before we have a definition of these terms, is to vainly beat the air. And we still don't have a good definition of this. So I sort of don't answer that question. Um, so a que another question then is sort of um, how much of the Neanderthal genome remains today? Because if your roots are outside Africa, you have 1 or 2% of your genome from them, but we carry different pieces, right? So if we walk across many people, how much of the Neanderthal genome can we reconstruct from people today? And there were two papers that came out in, in January, one from um, Josh Ake's lab in Seattle and one from David Rice's lab that we were involved in, sort of doing that in the 1,000 genomes data. So you can sort of go across many people on a chromosome here and see which fragments come from Neanderthals and puzzle together pieces of the Neanderthal genome from people living today. And it's very, very clear that you can get together at least 20% of the genome, and probably twice that, I would think, because we have big problems recognizing short little pieces, so we probably miss several pieces. So perhaps approaching half their genome or something like that is still going around on the planet today. That's the immortality part of the talk. So I also can never refrain from saying that there are a lot of people in the general public that are fascinated by this and write to us. 
many people write to us and self-identify as Neanderthals and volunteer to, to give samples to us. Um, and I have started very early on to notice a pattern in this correspondence. And that is mainly men who write to us and say we are Neanderthals. And very few women who claim they are Neanderthals. So um, I sort of presented this as my research to my group. You know, I've counted emails. But people are getting critical, particularly when I have ideas in the group. So they said, this is just ascertainment. Men are more interested in molecular genetics. So they write to you, and women are less interested. But that's actually not true. If I go back and see, there are actually quite a few women who write to us and say they are married to Neanderthals. <laughs> and so far, there is not a single man who has claimed he's married to a Neanderthal woman. So that's, of course, quite fascinating for a geneticist, the type of inheritance that go on here that you have to do. But something else that we're also interested in, in addition to counting emails, is then other extinct forms of humans. And particularly, we are lucky to work with people in Russia, particularly at this site in southern Siberia, the Nisova Cave, this beautiful place close to the border to Mongolia and China where Anatoly Derevyanko and Michal Shunkov excavate since several years. And they found this tiny little bone in 2008 in this gallery in, in the cave here that they were actually very skilled realizing that that might be a human bone. So we got this fragment of this pinky of a child, the last phalanx of a pinky of a child, and analyzed its DNA. And it was quite unique in actually having 70% endogenous DNA, so very little bacterial growth in this bone. And we applied some new technology we've developed that actually starts out by separating the two strands of the DNA molecule and sequencing, putting them into these libraries for sequencing individually. So each double-stranded molecule have two chances to end up in the library, one for each strand. And with this method, we were then able to sequence a very good genome from this individual. So for the part of the genome, about two-thirds of the genome to which you can map these short fragments, we've sequenced it many, many times over, uh, about 30 times over. So we've seen every position several times here. And we were extremely surprised then to find that this was not closely related to Neanderthals and even further from present-day humans. It shared a common ancestor here, far back with Neanderthals, but Neanderthals then have a long independent history. It was clearly some other form of human related to Neanderthals. And we, after much sort of discussion about this, we ended up calling them the Nisovans after this cave site where they were then first seen. Just as Neanderthals are called Neanderthals after Neanderthal where they were found. And there are a number of interesting things you can now do when you start having really high quality genomes from uh, humans that lived long time ago. As high quality as you would sequence from a patient today. You can for example start seeing as you would expect that this individual died several tens of thousands of years back. So compared to people today, there are sort of mutations that have not happened here. It sort of lacks mutations. 
So if you go back to the common answers with the chimp, a bit over 1% less substitutions than you would expect. Do you see sort of evolution in action, if you like, here? So if you now just make the assumption this is 6.5 million years ago, we can even date the bone here to somewhere 60 to 80,000 years. This is with big caveats. I don't have much faith in this number at all. We also see variation here showing we have problems with sequence accuracy in the modern humans, for example. But it anyway gives an indication of what will be possible in the future. So this bone is far too small to be able to do a carbon date. But when we can do a good genome from it, we can actually in the future even date it and, or with genetic means. You can ask for these Denisovans, have they contributed to people today? And indeed they have. Surprisingly, although the bones are found here in Siberia, we find very little contribution in mainland Asia. There's now new evidence that there's a little bit, but the major contribution is out in the Pacific. Papua New Guinea, Aboriginal Australians have up to 5% even Denisovan DNA. So if we just summarize then what we believe from studying genomes about the origin of Neanderthals and Denisovans first, we believe there is some origin in Africa. They come out of Africa and in Western Eurasia evolve into what we call Neanderthals and in Eastern Eurasia to what we call Denisovans. This is not at all to say they were this widely distributed at any one time. Also not that there are not other forms of hominins here. We have the hobbits in Indonesia, for example, that we know about. We don't know where the borders between these have been, but we do know that in this part in Siberia there have been Neanderthals as well as Denisovans at some time in history. Then modern humans evolve in Africa, start spreading out of Africa seriously 50,000, 60,000 years ago, mixed with Neanderthals in the Middle East, continue to spread out, and mix again at least once, it seems, perhaps somewhere in Central Asia or so, with the ancestors of present-day Asians, and mix in Southeast Asia somewhere with Denisovans and continue out in the Pacific. And these old forms then became extinct, but live on, if you like, a little bit in that 1% or 2% in all non-Africans today, and an additional 5% or so in the Pacific. Now, I wouldn't, we have studied two genomes of two extinct forms of humans. I wouldn't be at all surprised if one finds additional admixture events, for example, in China. And I would also not be surprised if it was the case that in Africa, when modern humans spread there, there was also admixture. There is some indication of that in present-day variation in Africa. But it's much harder to really demonstrate when you don't have these old genomes. But so in this sense, then, we clearly disproven total replacement. We have something like 7.5% maximally or so, so far. But the big picture is still one of replacement, right? So to not lose track of that, to sort of like to suggest a sort of model called leaky replacement or so for how modern humans spread with some gene flow then from these other forms. So I think it's sort of interesting, this is a copy of this little bone, that 
from such a tiny little bone one can actually get a lot of information about the population history of, of the population from this individual came, but very frustratingly, we don't know how this individual looked. We don't have no other parts of the skeleton except three teeth, actually. We don't know what stone tools they made. We don't know anything about them except the genome and much of the population history. And I think this is an indication of what, how it will be in archaeology a lot in the future, that when you can retrieve DNA, also from small undiagnostic pieces like this, you will be able to get a lot of information. So this cave, the Niseva cave, had also yielded more interesting fragments. This is a toe bone that was found in 2010, deeper down. This turned out to be a Neanderthal bone. So we now also have a good Neanderthal genome that we published in January this year, where we have a very high quality Neanderthal genome. So you can look at different aspects of this also. You can look, for example, on heterozygosity. So how much variation there is between the two versions of the genome that this individual inherited from the father and the mother. You will see present-day Africans here have more variation than non-Africans. And here is a Neanderthal and a Denisovan having even less. And not only that, when one looks at the chromosomes of this Neanderthal individual, you find something amazing. You find long, long segments, 19 million base pairs on this chromosome, where the two chromosomes are identical to each other. And that, of course, indicates that the parents of this individual were closely related. So uh, um, Montes Latkin and his group here at Berkeley have modeled what the relationships must have been among the, in, between the parents of this individual. And it has to have been one of these four scenarios here. The parents were half-siblings or grandfather-granddaughter, or some of these things, double first cousins, I can't even reconstruct what it is. But they were clearly closely related. So I think it will be very interesting in the future when we get good genomes also from other Neanderthal sites to see if this is a general pattern at the time or this was something just happening in this cave at this one time. So what we then have are these good genomes from Siberia we have a bit of a genome from Caucasus and this one from Croatia. So we can now start to look at gene flow not only from these groups into modern humans, but also between them. So what we find then is what we already know, this gene flow into non-Africans from Neanderthals, from Denisovans into people in the Pacific. We find a little bit of gene flow from Denisovans into mainland Asians. So people in China, for example, also have a little bit of Denisovan DNA. We find genome of a, uh, gene flow of a few percent from Neanderthals into Denisovans. And quite interesting, an old component in the Denisovan genome not seen in the Neanderthals. There is some gene flows from someone else here of a few percent into Denisovans, something that split a million years or more from the human lineage. So it's very tempting to say that this unknown contributor here is Homo erectus or so in Asia contributing. So a conclusion is human groups have always mixed at least a little bit today. And in the end, then, I wanted to bring up four things the sort of consequences of this gene flow. 
So a question is then, we have this Neanderthal component in the genome outside Africa today. Does that have any functional consequences? And there are some hints, beginning to be some hints in the last few years that that may be the case. So there was this paper in January which looked across the genome in Europeans and in Asians finding that there are some parts of the genome that actually where there are contributions from Neanderthals that have reached high frequencies. 60, 70 percent people in Asia have this thing here. 60, 70 percent of Europeans have that. Sometimes it's shared between Asians and Europeans. Sometimes it's unique to one group or the other. So, of course, one interesting thing is to look in these segments and see what genes are particularly located there. And if you look for groups of genes, the only thing that stand out are actually structural proteins, keratins, in skin and hair. So it may well be that something in, in the structure or of the skin or the hair in, in Europeans and Asians actually is a contribution from Neanderthals. And we'll then find out in the future what that is. Something else that Peter Parham's group found early on, 2011 already, is that transplantation antigen genes, some variants of genes then, involved in regulating the immune system, come from Neanderthals and also from Denisovans, and have sometimes reached high frequency in certain regions of Europe. These are then proteins that present peptides from bacteria and viruses to the immune system. So they are important in regulating how well we respond to, to infections. So it's quite tempting then to say that this is something to do with these Africans coming out, meeting people that have lived for hundreds of thousands of years in the environment in Asia and Europe, picking up immune regulatory genes from them, and when they are advantageous, they rise to high frequency. It's a group in, in Shanghai who have shown that if you look at genes involved in lipid catabolism, so how you degrade lipids, they have a big tendency to come in Europe from Neanderthals that you don't see in Asia and, of course, not in Africa. We don't know at all what this means metabolically, but something may be going on. It was another study in January this year that identified a risk variant for type 2 diabetes, so the type of diabetes you get at old age. And this risk gene encodes a lipid transporter that sits in the membrane and has four amino acid differences to the protective allele. And quite strikingly, this risk allele is high frequency in Asia and also in Native Americans, very little in Europe and not in Africa. And if you look at the risk alleles here in red and the protective alleles in blue, you find the Neanderthal variant in the middle here. So this is clearly a variant that have come over to modern humans from Neanderthals, have risen to 25-30% frequency in Asia and Native Americans. Today it's associated with risk for type 2 diabetes. But probably in a situation where you have periodic starvation, for example, such variants may be actually advantageous. So this may be that this is some kind of Neanderthal adaptation to starvation. You can, of course, also ask, have you a contribution from Denisovans too? And quite fascinatingly, it has come out quite recently that it was already known that people in, on the high plateau in Tibet 
are adapted to living at low oxygen tensions. And that one of the major genes involved in that is this transcription factor, EPAS1. And Rasmus Nielsen's group here in Berkeley have now shown that this variant of EPAS1 that exists in 70-80% of Tibetans come from Denisovans. It's identical to Denisovans here. So this variant seems to come over from Denisovans into Tibetans. So it's quite fascinating that even life on the high plateau in Tibet might actually not have been possible or so easily possible without this genetic contribution from Denisovans. So this sort of fits into sort of a pattern of adaptive introgression, if you like, where these earlier forms of humans have lived for a long time in these other environments, and these newcomers from Africa may have picked up variants that were then positively selected and rose to high frequency. So you can, of course, also ask what is not coming from Neanderthals. So you can look across the genomes and look for things where you statistically see a lack of contribution from Neanderthals, although you would expect to see it there. And David Rice's group had identified a number of these regions, and when we looked where genes in these regions are expressed in the body, in what tissues, the only thing that stands out are testicles, so the, German, uh, uh, the male germline. So... It's very tempting then to speculate that the hybrids, the Neanderthal modern human hybrids, may have had some problem with male fertility. Because that's, of course, a common pattern when closely related populations or, or species have hybrids. It's often the males have problems with fertility. If you think about horses and donkeys, for example, the male mules are infertile. The females can have offspring. And finally then, a thing that interests me very much is what can we say about uniqueness of modern humans now when we compare ourselves to our closest extinct relative? So what has changed here in modern humans in the short time since we separated from Neanderthals maybe three, four hundred thousand years ago? And that may be an interesting set of things because I think we all agree that our technology, for example, with modern humans have changed very rapidly. Neanderthals lived for three, four hundred thousand years. Their technology were not that different in the beginning of that time and in the end. Modern humans have existed for perhaps hundred thousand years, and I think our technology today, we agree, is quite different from what it was back then. Art that really depicts things that we recognize that art comes with modern humans spreading across the world, becoming extremely numerous, spreading across water over long distances, come with modern humans, and so on. So it's very interesting now to me to make this catalog of all the changes in the human genome that have come since that time. So now focusing on these things that exist in all humans, no matter where we live on the planet, but where the Neanderthals look like the apes. And that's not a very long list of things. These are these things that then happened here became 100%. It's in total just a little over 30,000 single nucleotide changes, some insertions and deletions and so on. So it's very sort of fascinating that you can look through this list in an afternoon in a computer actually. 
you can, of course, for most part of it, not make sense of it. We don't know what these things cause. But among them, I believe there will be some important things hiding. So, for example, if you look at the amino acid changes, there are only 96 amino acid changes in this category that affect 87 proteins. And this is a list of these proteins here. So we are, of course, biased to think that something with cognition is particularly interesting. So the developing brain was something we were very interested in looking at, together with the people at the Allen Brain Institute. And originally, I was very excited to see that 88% of these proteins were expressed in the developing cerebral cortex. But we then did some controls, for example, finding genes with no amino acid change, but a silent change ascertained in exactly the same way. And 100% of them are expressed in the cerebral cortex. This just goes to say that almost everything is expressed in the developing brain. But with the appropriate controls, the only one that sort of seems to stand out are things that are expressed in the ventricular zone of the developing cortex and that have some kind of gradients, frontotemporal gradients. So in the layer of the developing cerebral cortex where cells divide, stem cells divide and form neurons, we see significantly more of these genes expressed. And this relies on very few genes now. It's actually only six genes that are responsible for this signal. All in all, it was only 87 genes, right? And strikingly, three of these genes, two of them are in the kinetochores and one in the spindle. So this is sort of where the spindle attaches to the chromosomes and pulls the chromosomes apart at cell division, which surprised me very much. I thought cell division would be so conserved, would not have changed with modern humans. But, of course, there are evidence that in the developing cortex here, how the stem cells divide the plane of division, for example, determines the number of neurons and types of neurons that are formed. So it may be, this is old speculation, of course, but that these three genes with their changes is something we should look particularly careful at in the future. So we can also now begin to look, taking variation in Neanderthals into account. So we have then genomes from three Neanderthals here and the Denisovans, and we can begin to look for groups of genes that have changed, particularly in one group of hominins and the other. And if we look in Neanderthals here, there's only one such category of genes that seem to stand out, and these are genes involved in hyperlordosis, so how much your spine is curved. And here are more things back here in sort of morphology and, and in metabolism. But this is quite interesting because this is something we can look at in the fossil record, the curvature of the spine. And indeed, Neanderthals differ from modern humans in the, having less of a curvature in the spine. So since this sort of makes some sense, we were quite interesting to see what categories come here with modern humans. And there come only two categories there. One is sort of behavior and one is pigmentation. 
And again, it relies on very few genes, just five genes. Two of them have to do with pigmentation, but they are not actually totally fixed. When we now have gone on and looked in Africa much more carefully, a few percent of people in Africa have an ancestral variant. So this is not so interesting. It probably has to do with differences in pigmentation. But these genes involved in behavior seem to be really fixed in humans. You can, of course, look at what they are involved in or processes, and what diseases they are involved. And you then arrive at the last question here. How will we in the future study these things that may have to do with human-specific traits? And I've sort of gone around for 10 years now making jokes and talk and saying what we want to do is, of course, to put Neanderthal alleles into transgenic humans and human alleles into transgenic chimps and study their phenotypes and that we have problems with ethics committees and things like that. So we, so we will never be able to do that. But this has sort of been a joke, but it's almost less of a joke now because there are people who sort of suggest that we should now use stem cell technology and high-throughput mutagenesis to actually clone Neanderthals. Your church, for example, at Harvard. So I think we have exactly the same issues there. For many, many reasons, technical and ethical, we will never do that. But this is not just a joke. This is, of course, what one would have done in Drosophila or in some other model animals. So what can we hope to do in the future? I think one thing we will be able to do is find back mutations in humans. As we said in the very beginning, every baby that's born has 50 or 100 new mutations. There are 7 billion people on the planet. The genome is just 3 billion base pairs. So every mutation compatible with human life exists out there. We just have to find them and study them. And that, I think, will be possible in the future when we all have our genome sequenced when we go to the doctor. But that's a little bit away. I think we can introduce these things into stem cells and study cells in vitro. And I think we can also introduce them into mice and sometimes make sense of it. And I see that I'm going over time. So I will sort of not really show you then one such gene which has changes that happen back here and seems to have to do with language and articulation. Those mutations we have sort of as a model put into a transgenic mouse. So the mouse now makes a human version of this protein that seems to have something to do in humans with language and speech. And you can then study that mouse, the brain of it, electrophysiologically, for example, and find that you have certain electrical features of the neurons have changed. And you can also see that these neurons make longer connections in certain parts of the brain. And those parts of the brain are involved in motor learning. So these are these corticobasal ganglion circuits that seems to be changed. So you can then develop a theory about what this may have caused. And there's some new data now that's not published by Christiane Schreiweis together with Anne Graybill at MIT, where they studied motor learning in these humanized mice that have this humanized protein in them. So these are experiments where the mouse have to learn that it should go towards a certain light signal to get some reward here. And if it should always go to the left, after a while you can take away the visual cue and the mouse will automatically go to the left. It has sort of automated this. 
And if you look at the, how quickly you come to this automation of the thing, it's quite a difference between the humanized mice to the wild-type litter mates. They learn in seven to eight days to do this, what takes 11 and 12 days in the wild-type litter mates reared by the same mother, etc. So this is sort of the switch from this sort of declarative to the procedural, sort of automation of motor learning, if you like. So if you think about learning to bike when you're a kid, you first think about what you do and you're very bad at it, and after a while you sort of automate the thing, and then you get very good at bicycling. And there's this switch here to sort of automating motor movements. And you can, of course sort of speculate and say that that's exactly what we do when we learn to speak as children. We learn to automate very complex coordination of motor movements in our vocal cords, our lips, our tongues to produce articulate speech. Something that no other ape can do. So there's an hypothesis that these changes alters these corticobasal circuits to allow for faster automation of motor movements and perhaps some aspects of language and speech. So I think this is very encouraging that one can perhaps sometimes develop models of humanizing aspects of the brain in a mouse. So we're then trying to do that with these genes, for example, for modern human changes now and for a number of other genes that may be of interest. So to end then, I'd like to say that if you're interested then in modern human origins, I hope I sort of convince you that it's quite useful to have the genome of our very closest relative because they then can focus on what's really unique to modern humans relative to them. In the future, when we have more Neanderthals, we'll also be able to study what's unique to the Neanderthals. But that will not be enough. We will have these changes, and we will have to go after them functionally. And the way to do that will be to modify human and ape cells in tissue culture, I think, but also then to modify and humanize mice. And with that, I should just say that many, many people are involved in this, more people than I can mention. I'll pick up one person, Matthias Meyer, who developed the technology to make these ultra-sensitive libraries that allowed us to get these high-quality genomes from Denisovans and Neanderthals. Many, many people have been involved in, in analyzing the data, I mentioned them in a talk several times, Monte Slatkin and his group here, and David Reich and his group here, Janet Kelsu, who coordinates all the bioinformatics in Leipzig, and Kai Prufer, who particularly then worked on the Neanderthal genome. And with that, I then thank you for your attention. Thank you very much for a fascinating talk, and uh, uh, Svante will take questions. Uh, Dr. Pebo, does it really make sense to compare uh, Neanderthal technology uh, uh, with, um, later, with later human technology, uh, with the technology we have now or that we had 10,000 years after the Neanderthals disappeared? 
uh, as opposed to comparing uh, Neanderthal technology 40,000 40, years ago when they went extinct to, uh, uh, to the technology that, humans had, that modern humans had at the time, uh, which um, uh, I understand that recently some uh, researchers have, compa- have compared uh, uh, Neanderthal hunting instruments with uh, modern human hunting instruments of that mm-hmm. age and mm-hmm. found that, uh, uh, that, that actually neither was more efficient than the other. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, they, uh, uh, and I think that uh, you'll find precious little representational art for, made by modern humans that's that, that's that old. Yes. Uh, so, so, do mm-hmm. do we know? Um, uh, do we yeah. do? Uh, are we sure that Neanderthals wouldn't be ma- wouldn't be um, making uh, mm-hmm. satellites now mm-hmm. if if they had been the surviving species? Yes. No, that is a good question. Of course, my take on it would be that Neanderthals had three, four hundred thousand years to do this, yet they didn't do it. And humans had 100,000 years or even less and actually did it. But that's not to say, it's not sort of clear what is, it's not clear that it's, for example, individual intelligence that differs. Some people have the idea that it's something with human sociality, that we have sort of developed a a sort of, uh, what should I say, a sort of, compulsion to communicate and teach that allows us to have an accumulative, this ratchet effect, where we sort of convey all our technological advances to the next generation so they can just continue to build on that. And that that may be the key why technology and culture took off in modern humans to that extent. So it may be that the Neanderthal could learn it, but they would not have as a society this sort of compulsion to pass it on. But, you know, yes, it's sort of an op- a criticism of this can be to say, yes, sure, only Europeans had firearms and Native Americans didn't. That doesn't mean that there's a difference genetically between the groups. But there is still some difference in sort of having 300,000 years and not doing it, I would say. But um, that one can have different opinions about that. Yeah. I've been wondering... Um, do Neanderthals have a myostatin gene? And a myostatin, um, I don't know if you're familiar with, if you delete a, a myostatin gene from a human, they lose almost all their body fat and they gain 40% more skeletal muscle, so they become like incredibly athletic. And uh, there's a few people who have this mutation, and they're super athletes. You know, there's one construction worker in Germany who could pick up 320 pound slabs of concrete by hand and carry them around. Um, you know, so I'm curious. If, you know, they're they're known for being much stronger than humans. So I'm curious. Yes, I we haven't looked at that gene. Okay. Someone should look at it. It's all out there, of course, in the public domain. I mean, more, maybe more regulation of the gene or something. I'm sure they have it. It would have popped up otherwise. But, uh, yes. Yes. Um, a couple of months ago, I was at Atapuerca, and they showed us a pre-Neanderthal skull and said that uh, they had found Denisovan mitochondrial DNA in it. And I was wondering if... if You've con- con- yes. Con- con- yes. Ah, that's our, that. actually our work, yes. Oh. <laughs> so 
Um, yeah, so this, at Ataparca Sima de Luesos, one finds 400,000-year-old hominins, a big 20 or I forget how many. And we have looked at, so these are almost 10 times older than the Neanderthals we have looked at. So we've been able to retrieve from some of the bones tiny, tiny amounts of short pieces of DNA and only been able to look at the mitochondrial genome so far. But we will for sure get some nuclear DNA this year or next year. But the surprise was that the mitochondrial genome actually goes back to common ancestor with the Denisovan mitochondrial DNA, but far back. So I wouldn't call this Denisovan mitochondrial DNA. It's still a deeper divergence than between any two living humans in the mitochondrial DNA today. But yes, it's sort of surprising. One would certainly have thought that these were, if anything, the ancestors of Neanderthals and would go back to common ancestor with Neanderthals. It may just be that we're so far back, so we're close to a common ancestral population of both Denisovans and Neanderthals at that time. But the nuclear genome will tell. And, uh, one more quick question. Um, I understand that the, there's evidence that the Neanderthal uh, youth, the, the maturation rate for mm-hmm. children was mm-hmm. considerably faster mm-hmm. than humans, and I wonder if, if you guys have any insight into the genetic basis for that. Uh, no, but I know people in Philip Kaitovich group in Shanghai, for example, is looking into that. Uh, yes, I think it might be something coming on that, yes. Hi. Um, great talk. Um, I'm wondering, uh, you, you, you showed three uh, different mutations in, um, that were... Um, Neanderthal in uh, brain chemistry, and you listed, I believe, autism as one of the possible consequences, uh, and uh, schizophrenia as another one, and there was one in the middle, uh, some kind of glycosis, and I was wondering what that... So we have Tourette syndrome, but it's not the, the... Differences to Neanderthals don't cause those diseases. It's when those genes are knocked out, generally one copy of them, you have those diseases. But the Neanderthal difference, sort of the difference to the Neanderthal in modern humans, is sort of a subtle difference in the gene. But this just gives a hint that it may have something to do with cognition or something like that. Yes. Also, and also, you, you the, the, the civilians, the, the, the ones that went, uh, are you saying the Neanderthals are not the ones in China, but the disavins? Uh, yes, I, I certainly so think that whatever was in China was could well have been the Nisivans. It was not Neanderthals, I would think. Okay. But yes. But I think autism is very interesting. I mean, there are Mike Tomasello, for example, is a sort of comparative psychologist who suggested that the things affected in autism may be something, aspect of our cognition that may be uniquely human. This sort of enormous tendency for us to put ourselves in other people's shoes and other people's perspectives. Uh, you showed a slide where, um, I th- I, I'm not sure if I read it correctly, but uh, there were some, dif- you're showing differences between uh, humans, what humans had, 
uh, Unique versus Neanderthals and chimps. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there was, you showed, there, I forget which group di uh, is unique to what, but uh, you showed differences, there's differences in pigmentation and um, behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I was just kind of reminded of this documentary that I watched about the domestication of dogs. Mm -hmm. And they were, just by selecting uh, for docility or tameness, yeah. they, they, you see corresponding changes in pigmentation. Mm -hmm. and uh, to, like coat color, and yeah. you see this in a lot of different mammals. Yeah. Uh, is there any parallels to that and to domestication of mammals yes. and uh, humans? We would love to find such parallels. I think it's a great question. I mean, this particular this experimental domestication that has been done in Novosibirsk by Belyaev and his followers, uh, successors now, domesticating silver foxes and rats and mink, and they see exactly what you say. So, so we work with them, actually, and I'm looking, for example, at RNA gene expression in the brains of the domestic, sort of docile and aggressive variants of these and compare, for example, humans and chimps or bonobos and chimpanzees and dogs and wolves, actually, to try to find some common theme there. But so far, nothing really has stood out. But yes, it's certainly something you're working on, yeah. Uh, hello, thank you for the wonderful presentation. Um, I had a question regarding um, the function of mosaicism as we see, as it, as it results in modern humans. So you mentioned that uh, a, a, my grandma six generations back would uh, contribute about one and a half percent of our DNA. And that's the saying that we have from Neanderthals. So my question is uh, talking about function is it all the same that grandma was a Neanderthal, or is there some kind of difference in how this would manifest? Yeah, so I don't know if that's such a good image. It's, of course, different with the Neanderthals, because this happened a long time ago, and these fragments are sort of spread all over the genome, and it's now in some kind of equilibrium. We all have it, so it's not decreasing anymore. Um, so the the great-great-great-grandmother's part there will, of course, be in big, big chunks, right? Yeah. So there is certainly a difference. But uh, yes, I didn't quite get the, perhaps answer the question correctly. So is there something we can say about how that difference would manifest in function, or is it just... Uh... Well, so the only thing we know about the Neanderthal contribution and function is really what I reviewed here. The immune response genes, uh, the keratins, the uh, lipid catabolism and the type 2 diabetes things. There will be more things coming in the literature, I think, but that's the only things that are known today. Thank you. Hi, I was just curious, how many high-quality Neanderthal samples exist? So, for example, if we wanted to do a 100 or 1,000 Neanderthal genome project, yeah. would we buy more sequencers or more shovels? Yes. So... We actually thought about launching next year to have something catchy to say, a hundred archaic genomes projects. Um, they will not all be high quality then. We are working on a high quality genome from this site in Croatia. I think there will be one. Might get a few more, but the rest will be 1x coverage or something like that, low quality things, but enough to reconstruct population history. Yeah. You mentioned earlier in your talk that there are no 
Neanderthal mitochondrial DNA in human populations. Later on in your talk, you mentioned that one of the findings seemed to be a decrease in hybrid male infertility. And my question is, have you had the opportunity to come up with any hypotheses about the rep- representational sexual yeah. selection in hybridization? Yeah, so we were quite convinced from David's work that on the X chromosome there is less Neanderthal contribution and less in the rest of the genome. That made us think, oh, it's, it's mainly men, Neanderthal men, who contribute this because they will, of course, contribute less on the X chromosome because only half the kids of a man get an X chromosome from him. But then we've seen other parts of the genome where there also seems to be less Neanderthal contribution and just regular chromosomes. So there is a bit selection going on. There are some things that are not accepted to come over, so that has made us very sort of shy away from saying anything about that. If I would just guess from what we've seen, I would say if I would guess on one, it would be more men than females, but we haven't shown that in any sense. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful talk. What can we use from, uh, what can we infer about socialization among Neanderthals from the evidence you had? You showed us that this one small group was pretty much related, Mm -hmm. and you also showed us bone fragments that were split Mm-hmm. Oh, yes. Yes. So, and and mm-hmm. uh, so of what do we know about the bones that yes. were split? What were their genders? Yes. Uh, well, how were they preserved? It's interesting that you ask that question here because Tim White, I don't know if Tim is here, the paleontologist here at Berkeley, he has shown that, that the, these bones have been treated very much, uh, have been eaten probably by other Neanderthals. So it's very telling, for example, that the bones with bone marrow have been crushed and those without bone marrow have not. Uh, And there are cut marks, for example, where muscles attach to the bones and things like that. And there's a site in Spain, El Cidron, where it's a social group that have all been eaten, children, adolescents, and adults. So I do think one ate each other. One can, of course, discuss if that's part of some ritual burial or so. Tim has pointed out that, that it's very similar to how one treats uh, deer bones or something like that at these sites. So I do th- but there are also other sites where they have buried, intentionally buried, it seems, each other. So, yes, I think there were eating going on. <laughs> um, there were clearly, at least in this site, one were very closely related parents at the level of half-sibs. That's really everything. The latter is the only thing we can really say about. The population sizes seem to have been very small and isolated from each other. So not only do they have little genetic variation, they also have lots of differences between, say, the Caucasus, Croatia, and Siberia, more so than present-day humans. That's really all we can say from the genetic data. So not so much. Hello. I did uh, Neanderthal and Denisovan, where did they evolve? I guess is number one. And number two, did they both evolve from Homo erectus? And, or do we have to wait for mm. Homo erectus DNA to mm. figure that out? Yeah, so we believe their ancestors evolved in Africa. 
and came out of Africa then half a million years ago or so. Not that that is shown in very well, but I think sort of if we say that this what paleontologists call Homo heidelbergensis is perhaps the ancestor of this, and you find this sort of Homo rudolfensis in Africa. So they probably come out of Africa. Um, they probably evolved out of something, but that is really a question for the paleontologist if one would then call that Homo erectus that they evolved out of. I would love to get the erectus genome. Maybe in Asia or so, where there are things that are called erectus that survive late, that it will become possible. I have two short questions. One is about the Ustashim skeleton. I was wondering, you said that it has clear Neanderthal contribution. Does it also have Denisovan contribution? And the other part is the uh, possible Neanderthal adaptation to starvation. Mm-hmm. What would that have consisted of? Is there an indication mm-hmm. of what that metabolically yes. would have been? So, so a bit hard of hearing, but we see this Neanderthal contribution to Denisovans, but we do not see it the other way. It seems. So there's sort of there might have been some small thing we don't detect, but yes. The Ustishim skeleton was, we think, modern human, but with a Neanderthal contribution, but not a Denisovan one? To Denisovans. So, so from Neanderthals into Denisovans. You know. And this, yes, adaptation to starvation is a speculation from saying that this risk allele for type 2 diabetes comes from Neanderthals. But it's very curious, of course, if, if it's probably not because it gives you type 2 diabetes that is risen to high frequency in present-day humans. It must have had some advantage. And I think it's reasonable to speculate that these variants sort of make you store energy better. And today, in a situation where we have ample nutrition all the time, that gives us type 2 diabetes. But those individuals would probably also do better in a situation of starvation. Well, uh, this wonderful event is coming to a rapid conclusion. I want to thank you very much for coming, and please join me in thanking Svante Perbo. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.